0: This is Physics Revision Podcast number 5, Thermal Properties of Matter. You're listening to VCJ, Victoria College Jersey. Let's start off easy with some of the stuff that we did in year 8. Conduction, convection, radiation, the movement of heat or internal energy. Well, once again we're talking about equilibrium. This time it's thermal equilibrium things have a tendency to exchange heat energy until they are at the same temperature, until they reach thermal equilibrium. And the bigger the temperature difference between two things, the faster the heat energy will be exchanged. So something very, very hot shifts a lot of heat into its surroundings very quickly, and so cools quickly. Therefore, we end up with a thing called a cooling curve, which drops very fast to begin with, and then levels out as the object approaches ambient temperature, approaches the temperature of everything around it. How does it lose that heat? Well, it loses that heat by four different methods. Those four methods are conduction, convection, radiation, and if it's a liquid, evaporation. Now let's start with conduction. Conduction occurs in solids and liquids. It relies upon the particles actually contacting. So the particles that are vibrating because they're hot are in contact with one another and therefore the vibrations can be passed on. So conduction is the passing on of vibrations through the particles themselves contacting each other, being in contact with one another. Now, when we're talking about solids, that can be a pretty slow process. Those vibrations moving through the bonds along the length of a solid don't move very fast. So conduction in a lot of solids is pretty ineffective. There are one class of materials that are an exception, and that is metals. And the reason that metals are an exception is that they have things that are mobile within them. Uh, You know that from your electricity. Metals contain mobile electrons. And so the electrons are free to move around through a piece of metal. So if we heat one end of a piece of metal we heat the electrons as well as the uh, ions in one end of a piece of metal because the electrons are free to move they will rapidly spread that heat throughout the piece of metal so conduction in metals has two processes one involves um, the ions themselves vibrating and that being passed on through the bonding and the other involves the uh, electrons zipping through the material and moving the heat very fast that's why metals are great electrical conductors and great thermal conductors they've got electrons that are free to move most other solids are actually pretty poor at conduction the second method, convection relies on the fact that it is usual for materials which are hotter to be of a lower density this is because things tend to expand when they're heated Uh, most metals expand by about 5 parts in a million per degree C over their entire length Um, liquids and gases expand a bit more and convection is a heat transfer which occurs within liquids and gases, so it occurs within fluids when our fluid is hotter than its surroundings it's also less dense than the surrounding fluid and something which is less dense has a tendency to float upwards there is a force called buoyancy which usually causes less dense fluids to rise up through the more dense colder surrounding fluid this then is the basis of convection convection is the movement of heat because the hot fluid containing the heat is in motion so the fluid itself is hotter it moves up out of the way allowing a cooler fluid to replace it that cooler fluid is then heated up it moves up out of the way more cooler fluid comes in, and we end up with what's called a convection loop because the rising fluid cools back down again, eventually sinks back down and we get a loop going around. The classic example of which is having an ice cube strapped down to the bottom of a test tube full of water and heating the top of the uh, test tube and the ice cube not melting even though we're heating the top very strongly with a Bunsen flame and that's because convection works upwards so if we heat the top but the ice cube is at the bottom there's no way that the ice cube can melt of course it only works if you can strap the ice cube down because otherwise the ice cube would float up to the top and melt straight away Convection the movement of heat because the liquid itself which has become hot or the gas itself which has become hot floats upwards because it's less dense the particles are moving faster because they're hotter taking up a bigger volume therefore it is less dense and floats up through the colder and denser surrounding fluid the force which is responsible for it is called buoyancy ok convection is easy and finally, radiation. Radiation very different. Radiation is done by light. It can be any form of light, from microwaves right the way through to gamma rays, but in general, when we're talking about things at the kinds of day-to-day temperatures that we deal with in a lab, we talk about infrared light. Rarely do we have something so hot that it is radiating visible light. It has to be over 700 degrees C to be radiating visible light. Rarely do we uh, worry about things that are so cold that they're radiating in the microwave. So normally we're talking about things that are radiating in the far or in the near infrared. So radiation is the process by which heat is lost through creating light. Light, of course, is an energy so if you are creating infrared light because you're warm then clearly you're going to be cooling because you're transferring energy away from you. Equally, if you're being exposed to a very bright light source you can warm up because you're absorbing that light, you're absorbing that light energy from that source be it a visible light source like the sun or an infrared light source like a heat lamp either way you're absorbing um, that light energy and therefore warming up, so that's radiation radiation can be affected by the surface, it's all about the surface area so a rough or dull surface if you measured it microscopically would have a very big surface area and so is a very effective radiator and absorber of light. So things with rough dull surfaces are very good at either absorbing light and therefore warming up or emitting light and therefore cooling down. And when we're talking about visible light uh, the colour matters as well so black is black because it absorbs all the light falling on it. So, black is very good at absorbing light, and as we've just seen with dull surfaces, something that's good at absorbing light is also very good at emitting light. So, black dull surfaces, brilliant absorbers, particularly of visible light, whereas uh, white shiny surfaces, pretty poor absorbers and emitters of visible light, and to some extent infrared light as well, although for infrared, color is less important, it's more about the surface area. And finally the tough one, evaporation. Evaporation is incredibly effective at shifting heat from a liquid because evaporation occurs because the faster moving molecules within a liquid have enough energy if they're at the surface to break out of that surface and a proportion of those molecules will not re-enter the liquid they'll be lost to the liquid, the liquid has evaporated the end result of course is that what's left behind in the liquid is on average slightly lower energy because it's lost the high energy particles that process carries on going and the liquid cools so evaporation is very effective at cooling liquids because the higher energy particles jump out of the surface not all of them re-enter the surface and as a result the particles that are left behind are on average slightly lower energy and of course we know lower energy means cooler evaporation involves a change of state we go from a liquid to a gas we're going to look a bit more at change of state a bit later on in this podcast but just for now let's add in that evaporation takes the same amount of energy to do the change of state as boiling does So it takes the same amount of energy to boil a gram of water away as it does to evaporate a gram of water away. And that's a lot of energy. So evaporation, very, very good at cooling liquids. And of course we know that because we all sweat and your body sweats so that the evaporation process removes heat from the body because evaporation is a process that involves surfaces you can control evaporation with the surface area, bigger surface area evaporates more of course the liquid temperature will affect the rate of evaporation a warmer liquid will evaporate faster than a cooler liquid is will do because more particles will have enough energy to jump out of the top you can also affect evaporation with the surroundings so on a windy day Any particles that jump out of the top of the surface will get blown away and won't re-enter the surface, so evaporation occurs more quickly when there's a breeze. Similarly, on a humid day, high humidity means there's a lot of water vapour in the air. And of course, if there's a lot of water vapour in the air, then when our evaporating molecules are jumping out of the water surface, other molecules are jumping into the water surface because of the amount of water vapor there is actually in the air at the time. So evaporation is a great deal slower on a humid day than it is on a very dry day hence the fact that the washing dries faster on a very dry windy day. Now very often we're looking to control the rate of heat transfer. If you think about your house you'll pay a huge amount of money for the oil that heats your house and you want to avoid much of that heat going out into the outside you want to contain it within the house during the winter so we're looking to control heat transfer. How do we do that? Well we do it by of course by insulation. Now what's insulation? Well if we're talking about a liquid the very most effective way to insulate it is just put a lid on because that stops the evaporation. And I've already said that for liquid evaporation is very, very effective. So just putting a lid on a liquid will make a big difference uh, and cut down the amount of heat transfer. But insulation will uh, affect... Shall I try that again? <laughs> um, when we refer to insulation, we're not normally talking about a lid. We're talking about some sort of bubbly material that we wrap around things to keep the heat trapped. Keep the heat out if it's something cold, keep the heat in if it's something hot. Um, And the reason that we think about them as being bubbly is that air or most gases are terrible conductors of heat. Rubbish at shifting heat. So we look to uh, trap Uh, heat in by using air. The trouble is, if we allow air to move around, then air will convect, and convecting is quite good at shifting heat. So what we do is we trap bubbles of air, and most insulation materials are simply trapped bubbles of air because air is a terrible conductor of heat if we can trap it in place so that it can't convect then we've got ourselves a great insulator. And you may also notice that uh, most insulating materials will have a shiny outside and that of course is because that cuts down the amount of radiation. The air cuts down on the conduction, the trapping the air cuts down on convection and the putting a shiny surface on cuts down on radiation. Now, of course, the most effective uh, way to trap heat is not to have any particles there at all, because then conduction and convection simply can't happen, because they rely on particles. Radiation doesn't care. There's no particles involved in radiation, so you can't stop radiation with uh, a vacuum, but you can stop convection and conduction. So vacuum flasks have two layers of uh, usually glass, between the glass there is a vacuum, the vacuum contains no particles, and therefore conduction and convection is impossible. And your vacuum flask is then mirrored, i.e. it's given shiny silver coatings, and therefore radiation is very hard as well. So a vacuum flask, extremely effective at keeping heat in, or keeping heat out. And you quite often see questions in the IGCSE where you have to describe those kinds of processes. How do you trap heat in? Or how do you keep heat out? What's a vacuum flask doing? Don't forget, when you're describing these kinds of things, you mustn't give the impression that heat itself is a particle. The particles in motion carry heat because they're in motion. Their vibration is heat. Heat is the kinetic energy of the particles. So the particles themselves carry heat because of their motion. Do not give the impression that heat itself is a particle. I've read exam papers where that's exactly the impression that's given, even by boys who understand that that's not true. So please, please, if you've described the motion of heat, reread it. Make sure you have not given the impression that heat itself can move around or that heat itself is a particle. It's being carried around by the particles that make up the substance. Please make sure of that. Right, I've got some blues for you now. free play music by Robert Sands okay last bit involves the equation so this is the bit that nobody likes so pay attention because this is the bit you've got to think about Uh, if we heat something up at a nice steady rate it turns out that its temperature goes up with a straight line in other words it takes the same amount of heat energy to make something's temperature go up by one degree C pretty much all the time. So we get a nice straight line on our graphs and of course from that gradient we can work out how much heat energy is necessary to make something's temperature go up by one degree C. And we call that measurement heat capacity or more properly we call that measurement specific heat capacity because specific heat capacity also includes the mass So specific heat capacity is the energy needed to make one gram or one kilogram of a material go up by one degrees C. It has the symbol capital C for specific heat capacity and it has the units joules per kilogram or joules per gram depending which one you've used, joules per kilogram per degree C. Make sure you get that right, it's probably the most complicated unit we have. So symbol is capital C and unit is joules per kilogram per degree C. And it can be quite a lot. The specific heat capacity of water is 4200. So it takes 4200 joules to make one kilogram of water go up by just one degree C. It's a lot of energy it takes a lot of energy to heat lots of things up but water in particular takes enormous amounts of energy to heat it up so 4200 joules per kilogram per degree C specific heat capacity of water. And of course you can imagine doing calculations on that. You're told you've got uh, 30 grams of water. You're told that its temperature has gone up by 10 degrees C. And you're asked to work out how much energy was put in. Well of course 30 grams is 0.03 kilograms. So we take 0.03. We multiply it by 4200. And we multiply it by the change in temperature. Uh, which I think it was t- I said was 10 degrees C. Didn't I? And we get some sort of answer out of that by pumping that in our calculator. So the equation is... The energy is equal to the mass multiplied by the specific heat capacity multiplied by the change in temperature. And I normally write that one as capital E is equal to small m capital C delta capital T. Energy is equal to mass times specific heat capacity. By changing temperature and then you just do calculations based upon that. So that's just changing a substance's temperature something else happens when there's a change of state. Now change of state means going from solid to liquid or liquid to solid or liquid to gas or back of course the other way. That's a change of state and when there's a change of state energy is transferred but it doesn't make an obvious change to the temperature And so that energy which is transferred is called latent heat. Now what's latent heat? Well, latent heat, of course, is the energy necessary to break the bonds. If we turn a liquid into a gas, there's bond breaking going on. Or if we turn a solid into a liquid, there's bond breaking going on. So the latent heat is the energy necessary to break the bonds. And so water will sit at 100 degrees C until all of those bonds have been broken until it's completely turned into water vapor and only then can you carry on increasing its temperature or similarly if we cool water down when it gets to zero degrees C it will stay at zero degrees C until all of the bonds are formed you might still be removing heat heat might still be being transferred to the cooler surroundings like the inside of a freezer but that heat is continually being replaced by heat from the bonds that are forming. The bonds that are forming are creating or releasing energy and so that replaces the the heat energy that's being lost to the surroundings. So the water will stay at 0 degrees C until all of the water has turned from a liquid into ice and then once it's ice, its temperature can carry on falling until it reaches equilibrium with the surroundings, with the inside of the freezer whatever it's set to, minus 18 degrees C or something like that for the inside of your freezer So, that's called latent heat. There's definitely a heat transfer happening, but there's no obvious change in temperature. It's called latent heat. And we have a formula for latent heat as well. It's a very simple formula. Specific latent heat is capital L. So, specific latent heat is the energy necessary to make one kilogram of a substance change state. And the formula then simply is energy is equal to mass times specific latent heat E equals small m uppercase L E equals ml and so one of the questions that turned up on one of the exam papers not so long ago was um how much energy is lost from the body when four grams of sweat evaporates and then you're given the specific latent heat for water so you look at that specific latent heat and you have a look at its units Uh, its units were joules per kilogramme so you know you've got to work in kilograms so that 4 grams of water that you had has to be converted into kilograms which means 0.004 kilograms of water is converted and then of course the energy is simply 0.004 multiplied by the specific latent heat of water which is absolutely massive it takes uh, something like 1.2 million joules to convert a kilogram of water into water vapour absolutely enormous and so large large amounts of energy are necessary to heat water up and then force water to boil and those huge quantities of energy are why water is so useful for driving steam engines driving steam turbines in power stations that kind of thing because it's such a good store of energy so Specific latent heat Specific heat capacity They're two different things They're two different equations They sound very similar The equations are very similar And they're used in very similar occasions So that's one you need to go back And review in your books And make sure you're certain about Which one's the latent Which one's the specific heat capacity make sure you know, make sure you know that how they are used differently because if you don't you're going to come a cropper in the exam because you're going to use the wrong one at the wrong moment okay so that's the uh, that's the end of this podcast what have we covered we've covered conduction, convection, radiation evaporation how to prevent the conduction, convection, radiation and evaporation And we've had a look at two equations E equals mc delta t, the specific heat capacity equation, and E equals ml, the specific latent heat equation, along with the units for each, the units for specific heat capacity, joules per kilogram per degree C, or joules per gram per degree C, and specific latent heat, joules per kilogram or joules per gram. The important one, specific heat capacity, joules per kilogram per degree C, two per slashes. Make sure you get all of this stuff learned, please.